when I was sitting in at lunch counters and restaurants trying to break down the walls of segregation, I got arrested for the first time, and I felt free. Congressman and civil rights icon John Lewis. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. One of the greatest figures of the civil rights movement of the 1960s has died. John Lewis passed away this weekend at age 80. Now, just this past February, I posted an interview that I did with him some 22 years ago. Here's what I posted in February. Lewis was chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, when he helped organize the 1963 March on Washington. Lewis played many roles in the civil rights movement. He was a central figure, but he paid a price for it, often being the victim of violence, sometimes being beaten nearly to death. Today, Lewis is a member of Congress, serving his 17th term, representing Georgia's 5th Congressional District, and he's a recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom. I met John Lewis in 1998, when he wrote a memoir of the civil rights movement called Walking with the Wind. Here now my conversation in 1998 with John Lewis. I wanted to tell a story, tell the story of a struggle, not just my struggle, but the struggle of countless individuals, black and white, young and old, rich and poor, who put their bodies on the line during the 60s. It occurred to me on almost every page as I was reading this book, how much we've forgotten, how much we have forgotten how what the world was like before your efforts and what they're like now. And especially young people who will be reading your book will have no clue as to what it was like in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. Well, we live in a different world today. Today, there's a different world. America is a different place. It is a better place. When I was growing up, I saw those signs that said white men, colored men, white women, colored women, white waiting, colored waiting. I saw segregation. I saw racial discrimination. But because of the civil rights movement, those signs came tumbling down, and those signs would never, ever be seen again. What made you decide you needed to do something when there were millions of others like you who, good men and women, didn't get that same call, didn't, didn't feel that it was up to them to do something? As a young child growing up in rural Alabama, during the 40s and the 50s, I, I saw, I didn't like what I saw, I didn't like what I heard, and I wanted to do something about it. In the mid-1950s, I heard the voice of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on the radio, and his voice, his message of nonviolence, his message of standing up, with the philosophy and the discipline of nonviolence inspired me to find a way to get involved in the civil rights movement. You can still hear that, can't you? I can hear Dr. King speaking right now, a powerful message, a powerful voice. And I felt like he was speaking to me. I wanted to leave rural Alabama and go to Montgomery and get involved to participate. And my chance came. But you must have been terrified along the way. As a young person, I have been told over and over again, don't get in trouble, don't go to jail. My mother told me, my father told me, my grandparents told me, and the opportunity came when I was sitting in 
at lunch counters and restaurants, trying to break down the walls of segregation, I got arrested for the first time, and I felt free. I felt liberated. That was an anecdote, actually, that David Halberstam recounted in his book, too, about the, how, how liberated and how energized you seemed to feel the first time you were arrested. Being arrested the first time, you you just feel like a new person, that it's not that bad at all. Uh, no one liked going to jail. But I hadn't violated any law. I violated a custom, maybe some tradition. But I felt I was upholding a much higher law, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, and a moral law. Yet if someone had told you that day, during this moment of elation and this kind of liberating feeling, if someone had told you, you know, it's just a couple of years from now, you're going to be beaten, you're going to be almost killed, you're going to have your skull bashed in, you're going to be near death, you're going to be arrested 40 more times, what would, you, what would have gone through your mind, do you suppose? At that moment, I had made up my mind that this would be a lifetime calling to be involved in this movement for social change in the South. Uh, I, I was prepared, like so many of my friends and colleagues, uh, to put our bodies on the line. I was prepared, if necessary, to die for the cause of civil rights. Uh, I accepted nonviolence, not simply as a technique or as a tactic, but as a way of life, as a way of living. So I no longer feared the possibility of death. And on one occasion, I think I saw death, and I stared it down. Did you have any kind of near near death experience, an out of body experience? I mean, were you were you literally that close to death? During the march from Selma to Montgomery on Bloody Sunday in 1965, uh, when we were beaten by law enforcement people carrying billy clubs and bull whips and tramping us with horses, I I thought I was gone. I thought I I thought I was dead, and I just wanted to be left alone. And I thought it was the last nonviolent protest for me. But somehow, in some way, I was spared. And you never lost sight of, uh, you, as, as the phrase goes, you kept your eyes on the prize. It, it, you, you had to, if you didn't have a cause like that to keep going for, none of this would have made sense, would it? It was important. It was important to stay focused. It was very important to to believe in the end, to believe in the prize, to believe in the goal, to believe in this idea of a truly interracial democracy in America, to believe in what some of us call the beloved community. We saw the people that were beating us. We saw the people that were jailing us. We saw many of the officials as victims. Uh, we were not out to destroy them, but we were out to reconcile them, to change them, to prick their conscience. And to do it without violence. It was very important. It was a must. It was a moral obligation not to stoop to the means and methods of violence. Yet, as you point out in the book, many over the years took your quietness for meekness. You were by no means meek, were you? I, I, I don't consider myself meek, uh, very meek. Uh, I tend to be very quiet. I tend to listen. Uh, I do have what some people would call a stubborn streak, uh, that when I make up my mind about something, and I think it's right, uh, you cannot turn me around. I become like a immovable object. 
I happen to believe that you have to do what is right, do what is fair, and do what is just. You know, Simon and Schuster sent just a quick summary, a timeline, as it were, that summarizes your book in four single-spaced pages, and it's astounding. I mean, most of us, if we have one life-changing event a year, we consider ourselves to have had a very full life, but reading this timeline, you were going through momentous events almost every month, almost almost every week during the early 60s. But when I look back on it, sometimes I feel like uh, I never had a childhood. I, I feel like uh, I grew up sitting in at lunch counters, going on a freedom ride, uh, being in jail. But if I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't do it any other way. Uh, I feel more than lucky. I feel really blessed that I had an opportunity to get caught up in the civil rights movement. It changed my life. It have changed the country, and it made us all a better people. We live in a better nation because of this movement. One of the strengths of your book, and I think the reviewers recognize this, is your candor, your straightforwardness. You don't try to gloss over the, the internal differences. You don't try to, uh, uh, you certainly don't try to puff up your own role. In fact, one run review said you, if anything, downplay your own role in these things. And you've told us the straight scoop. This is how it happened, warts and all. Well, I think it's important, uh, not just for this generation, but for generation yet unborn and for the sake of honesty and, and truthfulness and openness. Uh, that we put all of our cards on the table and we put them on face up. Because it, it, it's so easy now to look back 30 years later and say the civil rights movement and, and envision it as some sort of cohesive, single-minded, one voice, which it wasn't. I mean, there were, there were different factions. You were, there was, there was internal argument in, and disagreement. In the civil rights movement, you had many different, uh, Leaders, and with the leaders, you had different opinions. Uh, you had conflict, or you had schism. Uh, from time to time, you, you had a person, a leader, like a Martin Luther King Jr., who could bring the different factions together. But even there, uh, you had, uh, conflict. Uh, people, some people thought Dr. King was not going fast enough, or that he, he was, uh, too slow. And others thought he was going too fast. Uh, but through it all, we had the ability, I think, in a, in a profound way, to bring the dirt and the filth from under the American rug out of the cracks and corners into the open light so we can deal with it. As I was reading your book, I shared your, your apprehension, your, your sense of, of imminent danger when Stokely Carmichael replaced you at the SNCC and started the, 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 the black power, and suddenly the rhetoric took a, a potentially very ugly turn. That must have been a very worrisome time for you. It was very uh, frightening and at the same time uh, a very sad time for me. Uh, during that period, I had been reelected chair of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and then the same evening of the reelection, I was de-elected and ousted what amounted to a coup within the organization. And people started chanting uh, black power, uh, and it became a lot of rhetoric, and it was no longer a programmatic organization. And it was this whole attempt uh, to oust uh, all of the white participants in the movement. 
And in SNCC in particular, but in the whole civil rights movement, we had considered ourselves for a long time as a circle of trust, as a band of brothers and sisters. And it didn't matter whether you were black or white. If someone went to jail with you, someone got arrested with you, beaten with you, almost died with you, you became like a family. And what I saw happening was the destruction of the movement family. Frankly, that uh, you've, you've touched on something that I've wondered about in recent years. Many of the people who are marching with you were Jewish people. And now there, there's the, there, there seems to be in recent years an inability of, of Jews and African Americans to get along. What happened? The Jewish community played a major role uh, during the civil rights movement. We can never forget and I would never forget. And we tried to describe this as best as we could in the book. During the mid-1960s, when we were trying to gain the right to vote in Mississippi, mm -hmm. three young men went out to investigate the burning of a black church. Andy Goodman, Mika Scherner, Jewish, and James Shaney, black. These three young men were arrested, taken to jail. Later that same evening, taken from jail, beaten, shot, and killed. And we must never, ever forget it. They didn't die in Vietnam or in South Africa or in the Middle East or in Central South America, but they died in our own country. And there's been this attempt on the part of some within the African-American community and some in the larger community to divide, uh, to separate members of the black community and members of the Jewish community. But there's a long history of people working together. And then now there's an attempt to rebuild this coalition. And all across America, you have in the African-American community and in the Jewish community, organizations, individuals, and groups coming together to rebuild this coalition. Were, were there times when you were writing this book that it was too painful to look back on? Were there, were there things that you didn't want to remember? In order to to write the book, uh, film footage, to hear some of the voices that I hadn't heard, to hear people, the pain of people crying and hollering uh, during the march from Selma to Montgomery. And at one point, I, I broke down and cried uh, in Birmingham when I saw the police dogs and saw the fire hoses and going to the site where the 16th Street Church was bombed and a full of girls were killed in Birmingham. It, it was too much for me. And, and later, a similar thing happened to me uh, in Montgomery. Um, it, it was very painful to relive some of the efforts during the 60s, but it was very painful to relive the assassination of Dr. King, the assassination of Bobby Kennedy. Mm -hmm. These two young men were friends of mine, two men that I knew and knew very well. But obviously, in the end, you're glad you wrote the book. I, I'm very pleased and, and delighted uh, that I completed the book. It took a few years to do it. Uh, it's been a very liberating experience also uh, to write the book, to get it out. It's out of me. It's there. And uh, I feel very good about it. And if the reviews are any indication, this book will be on books, bookshelves and uh, probably on required reading lists for many, many years to come. Well, it is my hope that uh, young people in particular but all Americans will have an opportunity to know something about our history, 
which is quite contemporary. It's not ancient history. It is recent American history. Still ongoing. It is ongoing because the drama is still unfolding, and we must move toward the building of the beloved community and open society. And it's my hope that people can be inspired uh, to walk with the wind and be led by the spirit of history. Congressman and civil rights icon John Lewis on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson.